The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Let's see here. We're going to read Psalm 75 today. Psalm 75, to the chief musician set to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. I say to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever... I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Okay, we're in uh, chapter 4 of Jonah. This is our last Jonah sermon. And I'm going to go ahead and read you the uh, verses. It's verses 5 through 11. And then we'll get into what I believe they're telling you. Charlie, did you clap? Yes. And if I didn't, it's okay. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished for death for himself and he says, said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Everybody remember the symbolism of chapter 2 of Jonah? He was in the sea. They cast him into the sea. That was Christ being cast into the sea of death. Okay? And then he was swallowed by the fish, which is his deliverer. And the fish did something to him, vomited him out onto dry ground. Okay, remember the symbolism. This entire book is teaching us something. This entire book, especially this last chapter, has got all kinds of symbolism. A worm, a vehement east wind, a plant. Everything is pointing to something. And I think you might be a little bit surprised at what God is trying to tell us in this last section of the book of Jonah. Last week, we closed out the sermon in verse 4. 
I noted that of more than 20 translations, which I check for each sermon, one read differently in that verse than all of the others. Most versions are exceedingly similar to that of the New King James Version, which said, Is it right for you to be angry? Only Young's correctly translated it as, Is doing good displeasing to you? The verb is active. It's not passive. The same sentiment is found in verse 9, which is tied directly into the death of the plant that was made by the Lord. While discussing this verse with Sergio, he said, it doesn't seem to make sense. How could it be good to destroy something that the Lord had just made? His question immediately resolved the enigma of Jonah chapter 4 for me, and thus the intent of the entire book. I spent that whole night laying on the couch and thinking through chapter 4, verse by verse and word by word. The next day, I called Sergio back and we talked, and I asked him to read verses 5 and 6 and see what problem might be perceived in them. He read them out loud as I listened, and then he said, I've never noticed that before. He had made the realization that there's a seemingly contradictory thought in those two verses. I needed to tell him nothing. From there, I simply asked a few questions, not intending to reveal the mystery, but to see if he could figure it out on his own. If he could, then my thoughts would be confirmed. He did, and they are. His face lit up, and he said, This is amazing, the way that only Sergio can. Today, you are going to hear a completely different translation of several key verses than you have probably read before. But they are in line with the Hebrew. Why is this so? Our text verse comes from Proverbs chapter 1. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and to understand an enigma. I often seek Sergio's wise counsel. He understands Hebrew far better than I do, and he has valuable insights into many things. But the question for us today is, why has this passage not been evaluated before as we are going to evaluate it today? Well, there are a few reasons. First, translators translate passages with the intent of them making sense. A translation that makes no sense, well, it makes no sense. Translators are not always commentary scholars. Scholars, on the other hand, look for facts, they look for figures, and they look for details, and will often override translators through a process of explanation, but not normally through a process of translation. What they say may take pages and pages to explain a single verse that translators are limited to. However, what they say must make sense or it is just vain rambling, and there's a lot of that among scholars. In the case of Robert Young, his translation is correct but it makes no sense, and so it has been overlooked. It doesn't explain anything, and it doesn't even clear up anything. It complicates things. Despite his accurate translation, he does nothing with the rest of the passage, and so the enigma remained. And finally, there are presuppositions as to what is being said. Concerning verse 11, the final verse of the chapter and the book, there are biases by Jewish commentators which have to be overlooked. And then there are presuppositions about what is being said that have to be ignored. And so, unlike a translator who is looking to make a quick, clear sense out of something that may be cumbersome, 
And unlike a scholar who is trying to give you facts and figures and historically relevant commentary, and unlike those with biases or presuppositions, there is a fourth group. It is those who use translations as far as they can be used and who ponder the words of scholars for background information, and then they add in one final element. There's a person that, named John Gill. He lived hundreds of years ago, and he is this type of person. This element is the key to all of Scripture. It is, how does this point to Jesus and what he is doing in redemptive history? Jesus told us that he is what Scripture speaks of, and therefore Jonah chapter 4 is included in that. And so in order to understand what this chapter is saying, we have to step out of a comfortable translation and go beyond the logic of scholars. Biases and presuppositions also need to be quashed. We have to look for the key. We must look for Christ. This is how to understand an enigma, at least from a biblical perspective. Chapter 4 of Jonah has been so misunderstood because people have inserted their presuppositions into the text. And because of this, it is a book which ends in a surprisingly odd way. Many people say that it ends anticlimatically. The Lord goes into great detail preparing object lessons for Jonah, and these object lessons have been misunderstood, leaving the chapter ending with one impression when a completely different one is intended. I am thankful to Robert Young for having the integrity to translate several verses of this chapter without presuppositions, and I'm thankful to Sergio for being Sergio. I'm blessed that there is someone who also likes to try to think outside of the box. He has helped confirm the intent of many passages that we've looked together over these past six years. Wonderful things are to be searched out in the Lord's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is Jonah's object lesson. It's verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, so Jonah went out of the city. Vayetse Yonah min ha'ir. And went Jonah from the city. With his prayer complete, and with his petition made, and with the question from the Lord now asked, Jonah departs from the city. He has accomplished his mission, even if it was unwillingly. And he went out of the city to see how the Lord would act upon the prophetic utterance that he made. The Lord's question to Jonah was, is doing good a reason for you to be furious? This leaves just one possibility. Nineveh will be spared. But he does not leave the area and head back to Israel. His hope is that Nineveh will not be spared and that only he, a picture of the people of Israel, will alone share in the blessings of Jehovah. Verse 5 continues, and sat on the east side of the city, Vayashev Mikedem Lair, and sat on east to city. There's an importance in identifying the east side of the city. If there wasn't, it would, wouldn't say it, would it? It would just simply say he went outside of the city. However, north, south, east, or west, whatever direction wouldn't have made any difference at all. However, the east is specified. Jonah willingly goes to the east side. The word is Kedem. It is the place of exile, as in the exile from Eden. It is the place of wandering and the place of disobedience to God, as in the time of Cain and in the building of the Tower of Babel. It is the place where destruction comes from, as in the east wind, which brought the withering drought upon Egypt during Joseph's time and the plague of locusts during Moses' time. 
It is also the front or absolute forepart of a place, as in the entrance to the tabernacle. And it is the time before, the past times, the ancient times which are known to the Lord, such as in the prophecy to the king of Assyria in 2 Kings chapter 19. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet asks this question, are you not from everlasting? The words are mikadem, the same words as are being used in this verse of Jonah. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? The richness of the word kadem or east in scripture concerns a study of no minor significance. And the word calls out for thought concerning Jonah's place of sitting. Verse 5 continues, there he made himself a shelter. Ve'ya'as lo sham sukkah and made to their tabernacle. The people of Israel are famous builders of tabernacles because they were instructed to build them annually during their feast of Sukkot, or tabernacles. The Sukkah is a place of shelter and protection. It can be for livestock, people, or even metaphorically of the Sukkah of the Lord in the heavens. Jonah built one for himself there, outside of Nineveh. Verse 5 continues, and sat under it in the shade. Ve'yeshev tachteha batzel, and sat under its protection. Sitting implies abiding and being set. There in his sukkah, he abides, and the purpose of Jonah building the sukkah is confirmed in that it provides tzel, or shade. The word comes from tzalal, which means shadowing, as in hovering over. Thus he is covered and shaded. However, shade in scripture is used metaphorically to indicate protection. This is seen in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow or under the protection of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. Verse 5 continues, till he might see what would become of the city. Adasher yireh ma ba'ir until which might see what will come to pass in city. There, protected by the covering of his sukkah, Jonah watches and awaits what will come to pass. He is safe, but what will happen to the city? Because what happens to the city is what will happen to its inhabitants. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant. Veman Yehovah Elohim Kikayon, and appointed Yehovah Elohim Kikayon. So far, Yehovah, or the Lord, has been referred to in verses 2, 3, and 4. Elohim, or God, has been referred to in verse 2. Now, Yehovah Elohim, or the Lord God, is referred to. It is he who does the preparing. Why the change? And what indeed has he prepared? A kikayon? It is a word which is referred to for the first of five times, but all will be in this passage. It is found nowhere else in scripture. It is found nowhere else in recorded history, but rather it is unique to this passage of scripture alone. It is variously translated as plant, leafy plant, vine plant, gourd, little plant, vine, pumpkin, and ivy. It is even footnoted as a castor oil plant. I asked Hidako to see what the Japanese version said. She said, it says togoma. And she had no idea what that meant, even in Japanese. So she read the margin note and then said, Oh, I know what it is. It's the gourd. So there you go. They say it's a gourd, which is correct. The answer is any of them and none of them. Nobody knows what a kikayon is. Every translation is speculation. However, translators need to put something, and so they make a best guess. 
And so the proper translation would simply be to say Kikoyon. It is a name and therefore a transliteration is all that's needed. However, Kikoyon comes from the word Kaya or to vomit. In fact, when I asked Sergio to read it in Hebrew, the first thing he thought was, why is this speaking of vomit? The word ki means to vomit, the action. The word ka means vomit, the thing. And yon is a suffix which signifies a process or denoting action or a condition. It is where our suffix ion comes from, such as in administration or generation. Lexicographers say that ion goes back to the Latin, but they missed that it goes back further. It goes back to Hebrew. An example of this suffix is found in Amos 4, verse 6, where it says, Also I gave you cleanness, cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. The word cleanness comes from naka, cleaning, or clean. Adding y-o-n to it causes it to become nikayon, the state of being cleaned, or cleanliness. As Sergio noted, it's a great example where you add I-O-N and it transforms the verb into a noun that describes the result of that verb. And so with kikayon, you have a word which in essence says, this is the condition of vomiting vomit. What on earth is this referring to? Verse 6 continues, and made it come up over Jonah. <laughs> Ve'ya'al me'al le'yona, and caused to ascend over to Jonah. This process of something undesirable now covers over Jonah. How do we know it's undesirable? Because every instance of vomiting in Scripture is taken in a negative sense, with the sole exception of the result of Jonah being vomited onto shore in chapter 2. However, for the fish, it was certainly undesirable. After Jonah's shower, he was probably okay with it, though. Verse 6 continues, that it might be shade for his head. Liyot tsel al rosho, that it might be protection for his head. When I asked Sergio to read verses 5 and 6, it was with an understanding that it seemed there's a contradictory thought in them. Without explaining that to him, when he read the words, he said, I'd never noticed that before. He included into what was otherwise skimmed over by him in the past. Why does Jonah need shade for his head when he just built a sukkah for the purpose of, and which is realized in that last verse, giving him shade? Verses 5 and 6 are the last two uses of tzel, or shade, in the Old Testament. What is being relayed to us with this repetition of tzel? Verse 6 continues, to deliver him from his misery. Lehatzil lo me ra'ato, and to deliver from his wickedness. The word ra here is variously translated as grief, discomfort, misery, evil, fatigue, evil case, etc. Translators choose based on what they believe the intent of the passage is expressing. The correct word for Jonah may be misery, but for us, it is wickedness. This is an object lesson for Jonah in which he is miserable, and yet an allegory for us to consider and to understand concerning that which is evil. The kikiyon is given to deliver him from his wickedness. Verse 6 continues, so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Yonah al ha kikiyon simcha gedola. Jonah of the kikiyon was joyful whoppingly. Despite having built a sukkah, which was for the purpose of shading himself, 
He is whoppingly elated at having the kikayon, which is providing protection. What about this vomiting of vomit makes him so happy? Can it merely be coincidence that in verse 210, there was the fish which vomited Jonah onto dry ground, and then there is this descriptive word being used in an object lesson for him to see and to understand? The Lord has used him in this story to teach himself and thus Israel a lesson. Will he learn? Will they learn? Verse 7, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. Veman ha Elohim tolaat baalot hashahar la machorat, and appointed the God a worm as arose the dawn to next day. Now another thing is prepared, but this time it is not by Elohim or Jehovah Elohim. Instead, it is by Ha Elohim or the God. As not one of the 21 translations that I referred to includes this, I assume that neither does yours. Therefore, please place the word the in front of God in your Bible. We are being told something. The God appointed a tola, or a crimson grub worm, at the shahar, or dawning of the muhorat, or the next day, to do something. This is, as Albert Barnes notes, in the earliest dawn before the actual sunrise. It is the last of 25 times for the shahar or dawning, the last of 43 times for the tola or the crimson grub worm, and the last of 32 times for the mohorat or the next day found in the Bible. Why is it so specific about the time of day? It could have just said the next day, couldn't it have? But a specific type of worm is named and a specific time of day is too. These are specific for a reason. Man, this is some object lesson. Verse 7 continues. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. Vetak et hakikoyon vayibash. And struck the kikoyon and withered away. This was indeed some tola. That worm didn't just damage the vomiting vomit. It completely destroyed it until it was dry. What on earth is the God telling Jonah here? Verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose. Vehi kizroach hashemesh, and happened as rose the sun. The word rise is zarach, which indicates to shoot forth beams, appear, and thus to rise. At this moment, something new occurs. Verse 8 continues, that God prepared a vehement east wind. Veman Elohim ruach kadim harashit. And appointed God, wind, east, deafening. Now we return to the word Elohim without the article. He appoints an east wind, but it is an east wind which is described by a word, harashi, used only here in the entire Bible. It is so obscure that the great Hebrew lexicographers, Brown, Driver, Briggs, denounce the meanings provided by all other scholars as unacceptable, and then they say, meaning wholly dubious. We make no attempt to explain. I, however, have translated it, as did James Strong from the word harash, a word bearing several meanings. He chose scorching, to which I disagree. It means deafening. This is connected to the word cheresh, or deaf. And this is exactly what is being pictured, as you will see. I'm absolutely certain of this. In the Middle East, the east wind is known as the chamsin, 
It is an extremely hot wind that is described in the book River God by Wilbur Smith as follows. The king's voice was frantic, he said, but I paid it no heed, for there was a mighty roaring in my ears like the sound of the Hamsin wind. Concerning the word mana, translated here as prepared, this is the last time that it is used in the Old Testament. It means appointed. It was used four times in Jonah, in 117, 46, 47, and 48. He appointed the Dag Gadol, or fish whopping, to swallow Jonah. He appointed the Kikayon, or the state of vomiting vomit, plant. He appointed the Tola, or crimson grub worm. And he appointed the Ruach Kadim Haroshit, or deafening east wind. Verse 8 continues, and the sun beat on Jonah's head. Betak hashemesh al rosh Yonah, and struck the sun on head Yonah. Without the protection of the Kikayon, Jonah is now struck on his head by the direct beating of the sun. It is an extremely sad state of affairs for Jonah, who has received pain and anguish while waiting for what he thought would be the destruction of the Gentiles there before him. Verse 8 continues, so that he grew faint, vayetalaf, so that he veiled himself. Every single translation of this verse, except Robert Young's, says fainted, grew faint, or something like that. But Young said, and he wrappeth himself up. He did this because the same word, alaf, is used in Genesis 38, verse 14, in this way. She took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, that word right there, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was gone, and she was not given to him as a wife. The word alaf is used here for the last of only five times in the whole Bible. It comes from a primitive root, which means to veil or to cover. Jonah did not faint. He veiled himself as an Arab would in the oppressive Hamsin. Verse 8 continues, Then he wished for death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And begged with his soul to die and said, Good, my death, than my life. Jonah came to the point where his misery had overcome him. Life had become so miserable that death was preferred over life itself. It is a repetition from verse 3, even before the object lesson was presented. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Vayomer Elohim Elyonah hahetev hara lecha el hakikayon. And said Elohim unto Jonah, the correct, burning anger to you for the kikayon? As we saw in verse 4, all translations except Young's say something like, is it right for you to be angry? But this is incorrect. Young's translates this verse, is doing good, displeasing to thee because of the gourd. However, this seems to make no sense. Why would the destruction of the Kikayon be good? And why would it seem evil to Jonah? This is what Sergio asked. Unless one understands the object lesson, it seems mistranslated, but it is not. Notice here that in contrast to verse 4, which this verse parallels, it says Elohim, God, instead of Jehovah, Lord. It says God instead of Lord. Why would this be? The answer lies in who God is in relation to the people of the world and who the Lord is in relation to Israel. The destruction of the Kikayon is what is right, and it is even necessary. Jonah, however, disagrees. Verse 9 continues, and he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. 
Vayomer hatev chara li admavet, and said, good, burning anger to me unto death. He stubbornly confirms that in the case of the good of what is being presented, he is furious about it. He would rather die than see this good come to pass. It is a sediment seen to this day in the people of Israel, 2,000 years later. The verse contains the last time Jonah's name is mentioned in the Old Testament. He is the son of Amittai from Gath-Hefer. In picture, he is Dove, the son of truth of the Lord from the winepress of shame. Okay? The Dove, the symbol of mourning love, is perfectly realized in Jonah here. With the death of the Kikion, the object lesson is ended. Now the Lord speaks again. Verse 10, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Vayomer Yehovah atachashta el hakikayon asher lo amata bo. Velo gidato sebin lela haya ubin lela abad. And said Yehovah, you pitied on the kikayon that no did perform and no magnified which a son of a knight was, and a son of a knight perished. Only Young's gives a literal translation of this verse. It says, son of a knight, to indicate lasting only one night. The kikayon, the state of vomiting vomit, came up, and Jonah did not perform or fulfill in that process. Instead, it came up as a son of the knight, and it was destroyed as a son of the knight. This is the last of 11 uses of the word amal, or labor, in the entire Bible. It is used only by Solomon, only by Solomon except this one time. Each time that Solomon uses it, it is in relation to futile labor, except when it is in relation to what God has done. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Va'ani lo achus al Nineveh ha'ir ha'gedolah. And I, no pity over Nineveh, the city, the whopping. Jonah is worried about the Kikion, even to pity. But the Lord contrasts that pity to his pity over something of true value. The great city, whose name means offspring's habitation, has human inhabitants, people whom he created, who he feels are far more worthy of his pity. Verse 10 and 11 have the last of 23 times that the word chus, or pity, is used in Scripture. And what a marvelous use of them to show the contrast between man's priorities and that of the Lord. Verse 11 continues, in which are more than 120,000 persons. Asher yesh baharbe mishtem esrei ribo adam. Everybody got it? Everybody got it? Which exists in greater from 12 myriads man. The translation of 120,000 is wrong. It is to be rejected. The term here is 12 myriads. In 1 Chronicles 12 verse 37, 120,000 people are noted as me'ah ve'esrim aleph. Here the number is mishtem esre ribo. Obviously they don't sound the same because they are not the same. Instead of 120,000, it says 12 myriads. The word ribo indicates an indefinitely large number. Again, only Robert Young rightly translated these words. That's why we don't want to get stuck on a single translation of the Bible. King James onlyists, 
They have missed the boat. You have to read different translations and you have to understand that these people have struggled with these words and people are still struggling with them. As Briver Driggs, uh, Briver, Driver Brown Briggs, BDB, anyway, those guys I cited earlier, they said that one word, they don't even know what it means. Holy dubious. Well, why is that? Because they had no idea what it means. But I've translated it for you because I've taken the rest of Scripture and I've understood what that is pointing to us. But you get stuck in a single translation, you are cutting off your own foot. What I will propose to you now is, as far as I know, without any precedent at all, no scholar that I am aware of has come to this conclusion, and yet it is exactly what is being relayed. One has to presuppose that this is speaking of the people in the city, and it is not. Scholars have struggled over the number, knowing it is not correct. The size of the city does not justify the amount of people. And so they back interpret the words to mean innocent people meaning children who have not participated in the sins of the city. That is without basis, and it is not supported by Scripture at all, which teaches inherited sin in all people. When the Lord destroys a city, read the whole Bible and you'll see this. He makes no distinction between the young and the old. But how else to explain the obviously incorrect translation? Rather than referring to those in Nineveh, it is speaking of the 12 tribes of Israel. As soon as Sergio said, this doesn't say 120,000, but 12 with a descriptor attached to it, the entire passage fell into place. The phrase is comparative. It is not descriptive. In other words, the city of Nineveh, capital of and thus emblematic of the entire great Assyrian empire, is greater than the 12 tribes of Israel. This comparison continues in the final words of the book of Jonah. Verse 11 finishes with these words, who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. Asher lo yada ben yemino lishmolo ubehema raba, which no discern between their right hand and their left, and many ignorant fools. This verse is set in contrast to Jonah 3, verse 7. It is speaking of the people of Israel, not those in the city. In the giving of the law, the term to the right hand or to the left was spoken to Israel, indicating that they were to know what was right to do and to do it. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5, verse 32. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 17. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. And it was repeated to them in the chapter of promised blessings and curses as well in Deuteronomy 28, verse 14. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. This is a term that is given to the people of Israel. The people in the city were given the word of the Lord and they discerned what was right immediately. Israel had been given the word of the Lord for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the record shows their continual failing to discern right from left. And the record also shows one more thing about them, which is realized in the words ubehema rabah, or and beasts abundant. This is speaking of the foolish people of Israel, not the animals of Nineveh. The entire passage is speaking metaphorically. The animals in Nineveh were adorned in repentance along with the people of the city. However, time and time again in the Psalms, in Ecclesiastes, and in the prophets, the ignorant and foolish of humanity are compared to beasts, the word behemah. 
Here's what it says in the 73rd Psalm. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. That word, the passage in Isaiah chapter 30 concerning the beasts of the south is speaking specifically of the foolish people of Israel. And Peter uses the term beasts in 2 Peter chapter 2 when speaking of the foolish and perverse. Paul and Jude likewise use this terminology. Again, this is speaking of those in Israel who are ignorant fools. The seemingly anticlimactic finish of the book of Jonah is instead a strong and resounding rebuke to the people of Israel. Correctly translated, it says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which exists more than 12 myriads of man who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and many ignorant fools? Israel failed to heed. Nineveh repented. It is a picture of Israel and the church. One rejected the Lord and his salvation. One quickly and decidedly turned to both. Now, before we have these verses explained to us, I'd like you to note that in the story, God specifically prepared four different things to guide or control Jonah. It says that he appointed a fish, a plant, a worm, and an east wind. Each of these is a different agent of God's creation. One a sea creature, one a plant, one a land creature, and one form of natural phenomena. In other words, the Bible is recognizing that God is sovereign over each of these aspects of creation. In essence, All of creation is at his bidding in order to accomplish his plans in the process of redemption. With that in mind, we are ready to evaluate the meaning of these rather difficult verses found here in chapter 4 of Jonah. A fish to swallow, a man at sea, a kikayon to cover that same man for some shade, a worm to destroy the kikayon, it withered completely, thus you destroyed what you once had made. And then a deafening east wind, it rages aplenty, While the sun beat down on the man's head, there he sat in complete misery. There the man said he was better off dead. But is it right that he should be so upset? Is it right to be so angry about the kikayon? The man says, yes, certainly, and you bet. But maybe he shouldn't if he knew what was being shown. And soon now we will look into what these things mean. Yes, now we will be shown what is meant to be seen, which is our second thought today. The object lesson explained. Jonah has pictured both Christ and his work in the past and Israel as well. Here he is a picture of Israel, the people. Their history is being depicted in the object lesson given to him. In verses 1 through 3, Jonah was angry at the repentance of the Gentiles, wishing their destruction. In verse 4, he was asked, is doing good a reason for you to be furious? In order to wake him up, he is next given a snapshot of their entire history, Jonah, picturing Israel, went out to the east of the city. As I said, it is the place of exile. It is the place of wandering and the place of disobedience to God. It is the place where destruction comes from. Israel stems from Adam, as do all people. All are in exile and all are separated from God, Israel and Gentile alike. There Jonah built a sukkah, a tabernacle. It is a dwelling place. Abraham was brought into Canaan by the Lord and lived as a pilgrim, as did Isaac and Israel. They established themselves as a people. Canaan the land and Israel the people became their own dwelling place and their place of protection. While they're in the land and even while in Egypt, they dwelt as a people separate from the Gentiles. They simply lived and watched what would happen to the world around them. 
just as Jonah did from his sukkah. But the Lord had more for them than a dwelling which they established. In verse 6, Yehovah Elohim, the Lord God, prepared a kikion. It is the law of Moses prepared by the Lord God. This is why the full term Yehovah Elohim is used here. It is the covenant Lord who is the creator God who established and oversaw it for them. He formed it as a protection over them. The Ten Commandments were given from Yehovah Elohim in chapter 20 of Exodus. The Lord God, the same terminology is used. However, the name applied to this symbol tells all that we need to know. Kikayon. The state of vomiting vomit was intended as a means of being restored to God, where life would result from death, if the law could but be fulfilled. The Lord said this in Leviticus, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul cites that same verse in Romans chapter 10. But nobody could fulfill the law. And so God's law was only temporary as a measure not intended to last. It was not a permanent fixture. It was only a protection or a guardian for Israel. Paul explains this very clearly in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, our protection until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith had come, we are no longer under a guardian. The Kikion was Jonah's guardian. The law was Israel's. This is why the term tzel, or shade, was used in both verses 5 and 6. Israel had built its own protection, but the Lord built a further one for them, there in the east, in the place of exile and judgment. However, the law was never meant to last. It was temporary and found an end in the Tolah. The question is, which is greater, the great shading kikayon or the worm? Well, what does the Tolah picture? I asked Sergio that, and without batting an eye, just as Jim blurted out a few minutes ago, he said, Christ! He had paid attention to the Exodus sermons. In the 22nd Psalm, a messianic psalm written by David, which speaks of the work of the Lord, including his cross, we read this, but I am a worm, a tolah, this is Christ on the cross, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. This is why the 22nd Psalm was cited all the way through chapter 2 of Jonah. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Concerning the Tola, Henry Morris writes the following. When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, think of the people of God being born, okay? She would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood from the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms. The commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ dying on the tree, shedding his blood that he might bring many sons to glory. He died for us that we might live through him. 
This is why the term Ha Elohim, or the God, was used to describe the preparation for the Tolah. The God, the personal God, personally attended to the preparation of the body for Christ to dwell in and to accomplish his work. This is seen in Hebrews chapter 10. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. The Tolah came forth to do its work with specificity. It said, as morning dawned, it was in the earliest dawn before the actual sunrise that the resurrection of Christ, as seen in the Gospels, took place. Matthew says the women went to the tomb as the day began to dawn. John says that it was still dark when they saw the stone roll away. Christ's work was finished in his work on the cross, but it was only proven so in the resurrection. The law was struck and died in that glorious moment. From that time on, only judgment can result from remaining attached to the law. This is why vomit is always negative in the Bible, with but one exception, vomiting Jonah onto the dry ground. Jonah pictured Christ in death and resurrection. The grave could not hold him. It literally had to spew him out of its grasp. However, the law, the state of vomiting vomit, still holds sway over those who rely on it. Peter, speaking of false teachers, including those who had set aside the grace of Christ and returned to the law, are like dogs who return to their vomit. When they do so, only judgment can result. This is seen next in the lesson of the east wind. This was prepared not by Ha Elohim or the God, but rather simply by Elohim. The personal connection to Israel's God is lost. Now they are under God's judgment, and thus the definite article is dropped from the narrative. This east wind is described with that exceedingly rare word, which nobody was able to accurately describe, but which I correctly, I am certain of it, translate as deafening. I chose this because the root implies it, and because the symbolism is realized in Paul's words to the Jews who rejected Christ. At the end of Acts, he cites Isaiah saying these words, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And again, Isaiah, in a passage speaking of the coming Messiah, says this, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear? Further, wind also symbolizes doctrine, both correct and false doctrine. The Spirit of God directs proper doctrine, but man directs false doctrine. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In addition, wind symbolizes that which is temporary and vain. In the 78th Psalm, it is used to show us that which is temporary. He says, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Isaiah shows that the wind symbolizes that which is vain. Indeed, they are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. 
The Lord sent his east wind, the wind of judgment upon Israel. It is the time of their being cursed for rejecting Christ. It is the Gentile-led church age, symbolized by Nineveh's repentance and turning to God. They are the offspring of God through the work of Christ, just as the name Nineveh means. It is a marvelous picture which is being developed for us to pay heed to and to understand. The word for east wind, Cheresh, is tied directly to the Harashi, or deafening wind, which Jonah experienced. The people had grown deaf to the Lord's call because they clung to the law. The judgment of God's raging and deafening east wind was a self-inflicted wound. Then the next judgment follows along with that, the beating of the sun on Jonah's head. In the law, the Lord promised Israel to be the head and not the tail if they were obedient to him. As they rejected Christ, they brought the curse down upon themselves. The son of righteousness mentioned in the book of Malachi, Christ, instead of favoring them, beat down on their head. In response, what did Jonah do? He veiled himself even further. He wrapped himself in the law and he added in the Talmud. Paul describes the veil. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. After the east wind, Jonah cried out that death was more preferable than life. He had clung to the law, a law which Paul describes as bringing death because through it, sin is made manifest. And when sin enters, death is the result. He explains this throughout his letters, but he sums it up with these words from 2 Corinthians 3. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, meaning the law, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Jonah, typical of Israel, testifies that he would rather die under the law than live under the grace of Jesus Christ. This is why in verse 9, God, not the Lord of verse 4, asked, is doing good a reason for you to be furious because of the kikayon? The question is not asked from the Lord, Jehovah, whom they have rejected. It is asked from God, the creator. They are outside of the covenant and are being asked directly, do you find the ending of the law, which was accomplished by my son, a reason to be furious? Their answer to this day is Jonah's response, yes, Doing good is a reason to be furious because of the state of vomiting vomit. They believe they can fulfill the law and re-enter God's presence on their own. Christ is rejected by them, and they are out of his favor because of this. This was seen in the contrast between Jonah and the sailors before he had his epiphany. The Gentile sailors had said, We pray, O Lord, using the covenant name, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, repeating the covenant name, have done as it pleased you. However, the Jews said this at the crucifixion of Jesus, his blood be on us and on our children. I didn't write these words. They're recorded in the Bible to help us understand what is going on in redemptive history. 
You know that's, that verse right there, his blood be on us and on our children, is the one verse of the passion of the Christ that the Jews argued against to the point where Mel Gibson took it out of that movie. It shows you the significance of the words of this book, the Bible, and what's happening in redemptive history. The Gentiles had come to fear the Lord because of Jesus. The Jews had rejected him because of Jesus. And so they will have to endure many troubles before they are brought once again into covenant relationship through the new covenant. Thus, the object lesson ends and the Lord speaks his final words. Yes, it is Jehovah, the covenant Lord, who completes the words of this chapter. He signifies that his pity has gone out to the Gentiles, represented by Nineveh, or offspring's habitation. The Gentile world has become the Lord's offspring through faith in Christ. In his last words to Jonah and thus to Israel, he notes Israel's pity on the Kikayon, the law, which he says they have been unable to even perform. The word he spoke, Amal, is that word used only by Solomon and always to indicate the vain labor of man apart from God. His words concerning the Kikayon were that Jonah representing Israel was unable to perform or to fulfill. This is why that word was chosen. None could fulfill the law. None but Christ. He next says that the Kikayon, the law, came up as a son of the night and it was destroyed as a son of the night. This is referring to its effects. It can bring nothing to light, but Christ can. This is why Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. You see the contrast which are going on? Only Christ, not the law, can make one a son of the day. The object lesson of the Kikion, the law, the Tolah, meaning the crucified Christ, and the Ruach Kadim Harashit, the deafening east wind there outside of Nineveh, indicates that there are far more souls to whom his pity extends than just the 12 tribes of Israel, who have been unable to tell their right hand from their left, and among whom are many ignorant and foolish beasts who willingly reject the grace which he has offered through his completed work on Calvary's cross. This is the lesson of the book of Jonah. This is what is revealed in the obscure and until this point wholly misunderstood words of this precious, marvelous book. For us, it is either the law which kills or the grace of Christ which makes alive. God showed grace to the Gentiles. The Jews wanted the law which Christ ended. They were angry at the ending of the law. But God's grace is extended to any and all who will simply receive it. If you do, you also will be vomited out of the grave, all because of the work of Christ. Now, before I take you to my closing words, I translated the entire fourth chapter of Jonah, and then I added in some paraphrases so you understand what's going on. I'm not trying to change God's word by adding in my paraphrases. I just want you to understand what is being said. So here's chapter four of Jonah with my translation. But it was evil to the dove, meaning Israel, exceedingly, and he was kindled with anger. 
So he prayed unto Jehovah and said, I pray, Jehovah, was not this what I said when I was still in my ground? Because it was so, I hastened to flee to the white dove, Tarshish. For I know that you, God, are gracious and merciful, slow to get into a huff and abundant in covenant loyalty and comforting concerning the evil. And now, Jehovah, take, I pray, my soul to me. It is good, my death, rather than my life. And said, Jehovah, is doing good a reason for you to be furious? And we come to verse 5, an object lesson in allegory and metaphor. Verse 5, and the dove, meaning Israel, went from the city and sat in the place of wandering and disobedience. And there he made a sukkah and sat under its protection until he might see what would come to pass concerning the city. And appointed Jehovah Elohim a kikayon, meaning the law, and caused it to ascend over the dove, meaning Israel, that it might be a protection for his head to deliver him from his wickedness. The dove, meaning Israel, concerning the kikayon, meaning the law, was joyful whoppingly, and appointed the God a tolah, meaning the crucified Christ, at the dawning of the next morning, and it struck the kikayon, meaning the law, and it withered. And happened as rose the sun, meaning the dawning of God's new economy, the age of grace, and God appointed wind east deafening, meaning Israel could no longer hear, and struck the sun on the head of the dove, meaning Israel, so that he veiled himself, meaning Israel had wrapped itself in the law, and begged with his soul to die, and said, Good is my death than my life. And said God unto the dove, meaning Israel, is doing good a reason for you to be furious concerning the kikayon, meaning the law? And he said, doing good is a reason for me to be furious, even to death. And said, Jehovah, you pitied the kikayon, meaning the law, which you are unable to fulfill, and you did not magnify, which a son of a knight was, and a son of a knight perished, meaning the law brought nothing to light. And I... No pity over the offspring's habitation, the city, the whopping, referring to the Gentile world, which exists more than 12 myriads of man, meaning the 12 tribes of Israel, which cannot discern between their right hand and their left, meaning being transgressors of the law, and many ignorant fools, meaning willfully disobedient people. The book of Jonah, the dove, typifies mourning love, which God feels for the people of the world. So much so that he was willing to step out of his heavenly abode and come and walk among us. Let us cling to the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Our closing verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law. It is annulled. It is done. There is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The Tola, the crimson grub worm, the crucified Christ, the grace of God. Next week is Leviticus 1, 1 through 4. We hope you will find this new book fun. It's entitled The Burnt Offering. <coughs> Part one, I'll tell you something I've told you 10 times, and I'm never going to tell you again. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay?
I got a poem for you. Finish up the book of Jonah. Everybody enjoy that? Yes. Isn't it marvelous? Very good. What a story he has given us. This is entitled The Long Grace, an Object Lesson. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the city's east side. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. What would the Lord decide? And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah assuredly that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered away. And it happened when the sun arose that God, a vehement east wind prepared and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Thus he fared. Then he wished for death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I'm better off dead. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. So Jonah continued his rant. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant and insignificant plight for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than a giant herd or a flock, 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. Lord God, thank you for grace, glorious grace. Thank you for fulfilling what stood opposed to us. Thank you for turning towards us your marvelous face as we behold our Savior, our precious Jesus. And Lord, we pray for those who still choose to cling to the law which is dead, withered away. Open the eyes of Israel, all of the Jews. Call them back to yourself. This we pray. And for any others who have left your grace clinging to the law in a hope that it will please, turn them away from that terrible place and to reconciliation through Christ who alone can your wrath appease. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book. Jonah, what a marvel to have studied it. Into every detail possible, we took a look. And now, to you, our thanks and praise, we submit. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Jonah, a marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this marvelous book. And thank you for the friendship of Sergio and Rhoda, who have been so instrumental in helping me to understand things, even without realizing it sometimes. Just their questions brought me into something else. Lord God, they're going to be so missed when they leave this land and they go back to where they're going. But they're going back to a land that needs to hear about you. And I would pray that they would be strong and bold and testify faithfully to the people in their neighborhoods and the people of their families that there is a risen Christ who came and destroyed the law, which that people is still clinging to, and that they would turn away from that and they would trust wholly and completely in the grace of Jesus Christ alone, understanding he's the fulfillment of all of these things. And maybe this book, which is translated the way it is now, maybe that'll open some eyes. I would pray it so. I, I just am thankful that you have allowed us to go through it and to search these things out and to show yourself to us in a way which shows us that you are in control of all things and that the Gentile-led church age is not an aberration, but it is a part of your great plan for the people of the world to call on you. And pretty soon it's going to be ending and you're going to be taking us home and your eyes are going to be fixed solely and completely back on Israel. And may you be their defender and their strong tower during that terrible time on earth and bring many through alive so that they can praise you in the coming millennial kingdom. Great God, you are so wonderful. 
Thank you for this book. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for all the people that helped this church from around the country and even people from outside of this country that have been willing to support this church to keep it going. And we're so thankful. We're into three and a half years now. What an honor. What a privilege. We thank you for it. Lord God, we commit the rest of the day to you and the Lord's table to you. I pray for each person here that uh, they would get home safely and that they would have a safe and wonderful week ahead. All glory to you. All hail you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There was a article on, I think, Art Shiva this week. That somebody had a uh, uh, talit, and uh, it, they were in their synagogue, and somebody read the thing, and it said something about Yeshua, the Messiah, and they all freaked out because somebody bought the wrong talit there. I thought, good, good job there. Yeah, yeah, made a little bit of a stir in the uh, synagogue, but it's all, man, it's all right there. Book of Jonah, everything. It's all pointing to the same thing. The Jews have just rejected him. They've just rejected him, and you know what? The veil is there, but we'll, let's just keep praying for Israel. Let's just keep praying for the Jewish people that their eyes will be open. I want listen to this uh, this music from Israel. You know the messianic music. I've sent it to some of you, and I post it on Facebook from time to time. And they're praising Jesus, and the whole crowd is full of them. But they're such a small part of that country, and they need to get the word out. And I hope they're not just staying inside of their thing and praising Jesus with music and not getting out and telling people because time is short.